Hello everyone, my name is Sergej Vucetic and this is a SIPS podcast series on international affairs. Today we have something completely different, a tri-continental conversation on the rise of Englishness and its consequences. Uh, my guests are three political science professors, uh, Elsa Henderson at the University of Edinburgh, Richard Wynne-Jones at Cardiff University and Ben Wellings at Monash uh, University in Melbourne. All three are experts with important recent books on the subject. Elsa and Richard's book published with Oxford University Press is entitled Englishness, uh, The Political Force Transforming Britain. And Ben's book, uh, English Nationalism, Brexit and the Anglosphere, uh, was published in 2019 uh, with Manchester University Press. You'll find more information about all of these books and their authors at the SIPS website. So for today, we prepared three questions. Uh, one is, what is Englishness? Uh, two is, how do you get at it? And three, how is it shaping uh, politics in the UK and beyond? And we'll start with Elsa because, in part, uh, she this is a homecoming for her. She completed her BA in political science uh, back in the day at the University of Ottawa. So how is it that you and Richard are defining Englishness in your book? So what we're looking at is uh, how Engl English national identity and how English national identity aligns with other attitudes that help us to understand the significance uh, of this phenomenon. So we're interested in Englishness as uh, a way to understand attitudes to England's constitutional future, so its governance arrangements, uh, the constitutional future of the, of the UK state as well, and also how people in England feel about the UK's um, future, so not just its domestic ar arrangements, but also how it relates uh, externally. So look, we're looking at devolution and devo-anxiety, but also Euroscepticism and how these things relate to national identity. And one of the things we do in the book is we look at how those who hold an English national identity have different preferences and attitudes and values that we define as a kind of English worldview. And we try and, and, and describe it in, in, in sufficient detail but also talk about where it came from, why we see it, and, and what impact it's having on the state. Thank you so much. Richard, would you like to add anything, namely what, what might be different from the previous studies on Britishness that were more common? What's interesting about this conversation is, you know, there's us and there's Ben, uh, who we'll hear from in a moment, and there aren't many other people until very recently who thought that there was, there was anything to see here. Ilsa and I started plowing this particular furrow with Dan Wincott and Charlie Jeffrey around a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you know, we weren't being encouraged by lots of others to get to, to, to kind of pursue this because it was the idea that there was something there was a significant kind of national identity politics at the heart of the states seemed fanciful to most people. So the idea was that national identity politics happens in strange people with strange people with my accent in Wales or up in Scotland or in Ireland, but at the core of the states, there's nothing to see, right? Uh, and so for a decade or so, we've been uh, plowing this furrow with, you know, very few other people as kind of fellow travelers, Ben being one of the most eminent of them. And then, of course, during that period, we've seen this incredible transformation in the UK, which mainstream political science, if I, if I can use that, phrase really struggles to understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, really, in my view, failed to make good sense of, okay? And actually, 
I think what we can do in our work and what, and then it links in interesting ways to the stuff that Ben has been doing, is I think we can tell a much more plausible story about what's going on. And there is a national identity and the kind of assumptions that align with it that Ilsa was talking about. They help make sense of this you know, remarkable, the biggest geopolitical uh, shift in the UK since, since at least the Second World War, and arguably longer than that. So, yeah, so, and then, you know, bringing ideas around nationalism to bear on the core of the UK states, again, is hugely challenging uh, and was dismissed by a lot of people as being somehow irrelevant. But suddenly, you know, again, makes a lot of sense of what's going on. Thank you. And, and since you mentioned Ben, uh, let's bring him into uh, our conversation. Ben, it's true. You've been writing about why England is so often conflated with Britain and, and rather the entire UK for over 10 years. So how do you define Englishness? How is it different from English nationalism, which you, in your book you argue is a pervasive, persistent and embedded phenomenon we should be paying attention? Yeah, thank you. Uh, look, yeah, so I, so I take Englishness might be, I mean, I focus on English nationalism, so I'm interested in the, the ideology, you know, very, very you know, necessarily thin ideology, but nevertheless the ideology that operates as a mode of integration and seeks to um, provide stories and narratives that explain to English people where they, um, how they relate to each other and where they sit in, um, uh, in relation to other peoples and in the world. So from that sense, I think Englishness, because there's a lot of, amongst the people who, who uh, talk about this, there is a kind of a distinction. Some people talk about English national identity, some people talk about Englishness, some people talk about English nationalism. So even if we take that apart from Britishness, we've got some distinctions there and, and, and maybe, um, you know, Englishness or English nationhood might be kind of pre-mobilized or pre-political. Um, but I don't think it's even as, as straightforward as that. I think, um, uh, I, th I think that there are a set of uh, ways of understanding the, uh, the place of the English in the world. And these, these stories have been around for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so to pick up on what Richard was saying that, yes, there is this kind of relatively recent within the academy focus on these things driven by events right? you know a response to kind of a catch-up really um and, and and i suspect we'll touch on this later on but you know the, the kind of uh, a deficient toolkit to kind of conceptualize and understand this um but but i think that that in terms of an english nationalism it's interesting if you step outside of political science and you go to history it's kind of uncontroversial that there's an english nationalism and the sociologists seem to have an easier time of understanding national identity. So uh, it kind of comes down to a kind of political science question. But for, but for me, if you wanted to put me on, on, on the spot, you know, what, what defines English nationalism? It's defence of British sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And that kind of mismatch, I think, starts to explain some of the merged nature um, of Englishness and Britishness that, that we can see both historically uh, and now. But interestingly, is, is also shifting now. Thank you. This is great. So yeah, bo both Richard and Ben mentioned uh, some of the deficiencies um, in, in the study of Englishness and Britishness in political science. So in recent decades, there have been, there's been a noticeable increase in the use of quantitative, qualitative, interpretive techniques in the study of ethnic and national identities. Quantitative scholars in particular 
have seen an increased availability of surveys that collect answers to questions about national identity and national pride, as well as data sets that collate national census data together for the user scholars. But the user quantitative data is not without controversy and debate. And in the UK case, there are certain idiosyncratic issues as uh, Elsa's and uh, Richard's uh, book uh, details. So maybe you can say a few things about that. Uh, you, you argue that the methodological approach adopted for major polls and surveys conducted in the UK precludes consideration of what we're talking about today, which is Englishness and impact of English identity that attach to it. And you also talk about effacements uh, uh, and methodological nationalism. So maybe you can say a few things about that. Where to, where to begin? I mean, one thing, one thing that's clear when you, when you look at UK politics is that the study of UK politics typically isn't the study of UK politics. It's the study of British politics and it ignores Northern Ireland. So that's the first thing that typically happens. It's, it's treated as a world apart for the purpose of election studies. It's, it's never integrated. Um, and, and it's actually very difficult to find uh, a UK social attitude survey that, that includes respondents in Northern Ireland. So that's the first thing you notice when you look at British politics, just certain parts of the state are just not included at all. The next thing that happens, though, is that national samples are drawn, and sometimes they oversample Scotland and Wales a little bit, but they, they typically don't draw those samples independently. And the result of that is that the, the, the samples are small, and they're not representative of the wider population. And once you start to then model any of that information, you're, you're, you're getting down into numbers that are so tiny that you can't really do anything useful. So the result of that is that a lot of claims about UK politics, first of all, ignore Northern Ireland, so it's not even the UK, then within Britain, the data are so dominated by English respondents, but at the same time, in a way that, that does not actually look at England, so you have something that is English-centric in one way, but also ignores England in another. Mm -hmm. So you have these claims made about what is working in Britain, these explanations for why people voted the way they did, for example, in the Brexit referendum, that completely ignores how the structure of the data that are collected could be having an impact on the answers you come up with when you try and explain what happened. And what we're finding is that explanations that work in England mm -hmm. don't work either don't work at all or don't work equally well in Scotland and in Wales and to be honest we're, we're actually really hard pressed to see whether they work in Northern Ireland at all because we often don't have comparable data so one thing that we set out to do in in 2011 was was design a survey that focused consciously focused on England and sought to measure national identity in England in a more sophisticated way using a wider range of, of questions, looked at issues of English governance that moved some of the survey questions on from the questions that had just been asked over and over and didn't actually fit kind of a contemporary reality. The, the debate had moved on from the survey questions. And we, we tried to do this in a way to understand how how the English feel about their own political community. Mm -hmm. um, and from that, we've been able to, to, we think, come up with 
claims about how things are working that take the territorial frame seriously mm -hmm. and 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 suggest that you know it's really important to have a focus on that territorial frame you can't just lump everything together and say aha this is this is how things work in britain and the best example of that actually is just in terms of brexit mm. a lot of the claims about why people voted leave we're using national identity in a i mean to territorial politics scholars in a slightly horrifying way so they were they were using scottish identity as a um to try and understand what was going on but so many people in scotland feel scottish that that's actually just a proxy for for living in scotland british identity was used in a completely undifferentiated way and ignored the fact that people who feel british in england are have different values and beliefs than than people who feel british uh in scotland and in wales and so disaggregating things and looking at different territorial communities that exist at different territorial scales helps to not just add nuance, but correct incorrect claims mm -hmm. about why things are working the way they are. Thank you. Just to add to that, yes. uh, I think the, um, one of the interesting, I think, I hope it's interesting things about our project is, is that it's a quite, a, it's quite a different story from the traditional story of how social surveys and attitude surveys are conducted. So these things tend to be very large scale, pretty well funded, um, kind of big infrastructure investments. And the, the survey, which is um, underpins our book and a lot of the work that we've been doing around, around things like Brexit, the Future England survey is a kind of, it's almost a kind of a homemade survey. I mean, obviously it's professionally conducted, um, but it's uh, it's something that we've really struggled to find support for from conventional funders because until very recently there wasn't a sense that there was anything to see here mm -hmm. you know when you're spending a lot of money on a survey you're not going to take risks you it has to be on something that you think is worthwhile and until very recently indeed there was no sense that there was a, there was it was worth investing the time and money in investigating as Ilsa was explaining on the kind of English scale uh, and so we've ended up um, not only kind of putting together a survey in quite a, an unusual way but then because there was very little else going on in this space we've been it's been quite a lot of trial and error mm -hmm. in, in what we've been doing and so we've been Sorry, you, you, you're, you're right to correct me. What I'm saying is that, that so um, it, there's a kind of interesting contrast. Academics haven't really been interested in what we're doing. The policy world has been really interested in what we're doing. And so we've got the opportunity to go and talk to all of these different audiences. And they go, yes, but what about this? So, you know, and so we've been iterating the survey in response to these kinds of challenges. And we've been you know, finding interesting relationships in the data that weren't apparent because, you know, nobody had been looking there before. So we've been trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? And so there's been this, this whole um, kind of the underpinnings of the book, the method, of, the, the kind of the data is a kind of an interesting story of a, what I think is a, a different approach to doing quant work. Obviously, it's all, you know, there are no errors, as, as Ilsa rightly pointed out. 
but it's a kind of this kind of iterative process where you're kind of investigating something that really that we didn't really understand when we started working on it. So it's been, you know, in that sense, really exciting. Well, speaking of nuances, I mean, what what I liked about future of England surveys is that the responses provided also include open-ended responses. Uh, and, and that's really interesting. Those are the things uh, that your respondents res talk about without prompting. And that's that goes beyond the quantitative survey tick box style uh, research. And, and I was curious to see uh, that aspect, but also the kind of interpretations that you would not normally receive in a lot of classic surveys uh, uh, on, on, on such subjects. So you end up talking about race and racism, which is very interesting and not often present in this kind of work. Well, I'm, I'm, pleased, I'm pleased you think that. <laughs> so uh, I, I want to talk to Ben now. Uh, so he's been talking about the relationship between Euroscepticism and English nationalism for a very long time. And so in this in this book, you're connecting uh, narrativized links, if I may call them that, between English nationalism, Euroscepticism, and something we all call the Anglosphere. And I, I want to. I wonder if you could maybe unpack part of that arguments with, with an eye uh, to methodology. As you said earlier, historians, sociologists have have, have seen things before political scientists in, in this case, and so maybe mention uh, that as well. Yeah, thank you. I mean, Elsa and Richard have done a great job of explaining some of the, you know, the, the, the difficulties of researching England within Britain. And, and uh, one thing I want to think about is really the framing of Englishness. And it, it's noted, I've kind of noticed, and I think get other people's thoughts on this, but it seems to me that a lot of the real breakthrough stuff on English nationalism has come from people who are situated on the periphery of England in various different ways. And so it's, it's just kind of interesting to speculate about why that might be. And I think that that may be because, you know, when you're in England, you can't see the wood for the trees both methodologically, perhaps, and, and in terms of framing England, and to invert Ailes's thing, maybe, you know, in all the surveys she's talked about, that, that Brexit is a proxy, uh, sorry, Britain is a proxy for living in England. So, um, you know, that's why it becomes difficult to, to kind of disentangle these things, and why perhaps academia, as Richard said, has been slow to pick this up, or rather, I should say, political science has been slow mm -hmm. to pick this up. Um, because I think that when uh, when I think about sort of in terms of relating English nationalism to other ideologies or political traditions, so let's think about Euroscepticism and uh, the Anglosphere or English-speaking political traditions, then you know we start to sort of think, well, okay, that this has been around for a long time, and um, uh, that that actually, you know, if if we're looking for the content of some kind of English nationalism. Um, we're looking for both a kind of, uh, if, if you like, a, an integrative and a disintegrative tendencies. And when you start looking at it like that, um, English nationalism is not typically associated with secessionism. I mean, and that's, you know, there's a little bit like what Richard was saying, that's mm. the kind of thing the Irish do, uh, it's the kind of thing the Scottish do. And, and one of the problems of framing English nationalism is that I think there have been too many kind of ideal types knocking around in analysts head that, that English nationalism has to look like Scottish nationalism. Mm -hmm. It has to be seeking either home rule or independence. And then when, when it doesn't behave like that, ergo, there's nothing there. There's nothing to see here. And, that, and that's not correct because there's an integrative element, which is how does 
Englanders' apology relate to its, let's call them significant others. Mm -hmm. And if we use that Churchillian, you know, the, the, you know there's, there's basically, you know, the, the Atlantic, the Commonwealth, Europe, uh, and the United Kingdom as well, which even Churchill took for granted. So I think when you're looking at England from far away, as I, as I do, um, you start to see it at the, at the centre of some kind of networks. And, and there's got to be, it's got to be some content to this. It can't be, I think, I think political science uses, over relies on the term identity, which is sort of somehow kind of an empty signifier. And um, uh, so you think, well, well, what's the content of this? You know, what, what kind of stories do people tell each other? And, and of course, it's, it's not just kind of sitting around having like nice stories. This is like at the, at the sharp end of political contestation, you know, sometimes, uh, and, and sometimes it recedes. But nevertheless, um, there, there, are, there are many, many rich stories and traditions that can explain the English to themselves and other people. Now, the extent to which English and other people believe those stories is, is a matter of contention. Um, so, uh, but, but what I think is, is occasionally stories and, and political projects come into alignment. Um, uh, political entrepreneurs seize their, their moments. Uh, and, and we start to see, as you know, Richard and Ailsa say, that the Englishness or English nationalism becomes a force for political transformation, not just a kind of a, uh, a maintenance or an integration of, of pre-existing and, and relatively stable stories. So mm. I think that's, that's where I, I see English nationalism sitting within those categories that, that you mentioned, Sergio and Euroscepticism and, uh, and the Anglosphere. And, and to, to final thing to say on that is, of course, that um, Euroscepticism cannot be solely negative. It's got to be, there's got to be a positive alternative. And, and for me, the Anglosphere, particularly in the 10 years leading up to the Brexit referendum and, up and in the negotiations afterwards mm -hmm. operated as that, you know, positive narrative, if you like, of where England as Britain could go uh, once it left the European Union. Well, let me expand on that. Since you mentioned Churchill uh, and his majestic circles, and I think he first used that metaphor, I guess, uh, in 1948 at a Welsh town called uh, Londidno. Yeah, right. I, I, thank you, because I can't pronounce it. And, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the only one, I imagine. Um, so you find that in, in your book, uh, Richard and Elsa. I mean, you, 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 you talk about this castle metaphor, uh, various concentric circles of belonging uh, surrounding the English keep. Can you, can you just expand on that a little bit? So this is this is a in terms of the the, the, the writing of the book that meant I had to fight very hard to keep that in the final draft is all I can say uh, and, um, and actually yeah so I mean it's one of these um, I mean um, all joking aside one of the interesting things about and I think you know um, uh, Ben has made such an important point about the way that ideal types are inappropriately used to try and look for something. And then when, when England doesn't match up to that ideal type, it's kind of cast aside. Um, one of the, one of the things which is, I think bedeviled um, any most thinking about Englishness and its political impacts is that it's been assumed that because modern Irish, Scottish and Welsh nationalisms are a rejection of Britishness. They weren't always the case. We can have an interesting conversation about the 19th century, if you so wish. But 
you know, in the, the modern variants of Irish, Scottish, and Welsh nationalisms all reject Britishness, mm-hmm. and so it, it's it's kind of difficult for people to conceive that Englishness isn't. So this is where Ben's definition of English nationalism as a defence of British mm-hmm. sovereignty, okay, that seems counterintuitive to people, right? Because how can English nationalism be defending British sovereignty? Okay, that's uh, and of course. You read our books, and hopefully it makes more sense. If you read both Ben's book and our book, you'll be you'll be banged over the head by by the fact that English nationalism isn't a rejection of Britain. It's a valorization of a particular story of Britishness, a particular understanding of Britain's past, present, and potential future. But then that also, like, so you've got this link between. Uh, Englishness and Britishness, but also then this wider network, uh, you know, in Churchillian terms, the kith and kin. And it absolutely includes, uh, I would say, a completely bizarre understanding of contemporary Australia and Canada, the old white commonwealth, as as it used to be known in less politically correct times, where the Irish fits is never quite, there's always an interesting ambiguity about where the Irish fits, but so, but so there's this the, the, these kinds of so the cast the castle metaphor, which I obviously think is excellent, but Ilse is takes some persuading over, is a sense of how these things interlink into a kind of broader structure. But then there's a the whole point of the castle is then there's a moat, mm-hmm. and beyond moats they don't belong. Okay, mm-hmm. they're out there within within the kind of various bulwarks, we kind of belong to each other, we, we relate to each other in some way, then over there, there's the other lot. That's absolutely, I mean, that, that, I, I love reading that because that confirms some of my own reading of contemporary UK. When I say contemporary, I mean the post-1945 national, national UK, as some call it. Uh, the, the allure of this Keith and Kin perspective uh, is felt both at the popular and elite levels and that's what you find as well which which is kind of a vindication for some of my interpretive approaches to yeah well, i was going to say you've been very self-effacing as a chair given that you've written an excellent book about this stuff <laughs> thank, you, thank you thank you for and thank you for engaging in my work i, I wouldn't call it excellent but but i'm glad it's 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 in there so that, this leads me to the last uh, question and and i wanted to I, I have to ask, since uh, the Scottish election is upon us, you'll be receiving uh, lots of media requests in the coming uh, month or so uh, to tell us a little bit about the, the so-called breakup of Britain. I mean, you, both of your books mention Tom Nairn's work. Uh, he was then a leading figure in the, in the post-war New Left, and he published a collection of essays uh, 40 years ago uh, called The Breakup of Britain. And, and so I have to ask, what are the consequences constitutionally, but also politically in the near term of the rise of Englishness. Why don't we start with Elsa now? Um, and I should say that I first encountered Ben in a in a nationalism studies seminar at the University of Edinburgh in the late 1990s when Tom Nairn taught both of us. So, oh. um, uh, which that was a that was an excellent, excellent summer to take. Um, in terms <laughs> In terms of the, the breakup of Britain, I mean, when I when I talk about this sort of stuff, I say it's facing a number of challenges. Um, one of them is the decline of of British identity, right? So, 
the interesting story about Englishness is that we've seen an increase in the proportion of people who describe themselves as English. But but the other side of that is that we have seen a far faster fall in the proportion of people describing themselves as British. And that, you know, we were looking at it within England. It's a it's a it's a transition that, that happened already in Scotland and in in Wales and in England it's not quite to the same extent but it is happening faster uh, than happened in in Scotland so in the UK as a whole or particularly in Great Britain you have a declining proportion of people who describe themselves as as British the other challenge is that levels of grievance are fairly high and 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 mm-hmm. grievance is kind of omnidirectional Every, everyone thinks, some other part of the UK is getting more than their fair share of resources. Everyone thinks their own part is getting less than their fair share of resources. In England, that grievance is directed in particular at the Scots, and they believe that the Scots have far more influence and far more resources than they should have. Levels of social solidarity are actually fairly high. If you look at that in terms of expectations of policy uniformity, so the sense that we should all have the same uh, policy entitlements, but also knowledge of what's going on, knowledge of the constitutional status quo is pretty poor. And if you add all of those things together, you, you get to a situation where people don't identify with the state and they don't believe that the state in its current constitutional architecture has a great deal of of legitimacy and so one thing that that i think accelerates that's kind of the context in which all of this is happening right Mm -hmm. but two things i think are relevant to that the first is brexit and when we were polling after brexit um, we we knew that there were going to be strains on the union as a result of Brexit. Um, and so we started to ask people, um, you know, there might be some consequences of Brexit. What about these? Would these be worth it or not worth it? And we included, um, you know, an unraveling of the peace in Northern Ireland and another independence referendum in Scotland in which Scots vote yes. And one thing that we found the first time we started looking at this was that leave voters overwhelmingly like over 80 percent said yes either of those two things would be worth it in order to get brexit and so we thought oh gosh you know those leavers they're hell-bent on kind of radical constitutional change uh, in order to get brexit but we, we repeated that same question the following year and framed it for remain voters and said right what about these two things would they be worth it if you could stay in the eu so reframed it in a in a way that Remainers could get their own constitutional preference, and we repeated it for leavers. And what we found is that the remain figures lag the leave ones a little bit, but you see the same pattern. Remainers also are willing to put up with radical constitutional change in the UK to Mm -hmm. get their own way on Brexit. Mm -hmm. So you have this wider context of certain things weakening and bonds, bonds, you know, weakening to the point of breaking. And then you have Brexit on top of that, which changes slightly how people are um, how people are conceiving of the of the union. Or in another interpretation, it does Brexit doesn't change it. Brexit just allows us to see what's what's already going on. And on top of all of that, we started. Um, you know, we've been polling about support for independence in different parts of the state for a very long time. But we started polling on on this notion of ambivalent unionism. Mm-hmm. So we were asking people, 
you know, is the union a priority for you? Uh, or do you want independence for your own part? Or this third option, the, you know, I don't want independence, but if one or more other parts of the UK go their own way, then so be it. And one thing that struck us is that you're up around 40% of the English electorate who opt for that ambivalent unionism option. So at a time when you have Prime Minister Theresa May saying, oh, we have a very precious union, we were sitting on data that made very clear, in addition to all the other weaknesses we know about, that people were willing to sacrifice the constitutional status quo in order to get their own way on Brexit. Mm -hmm. But also, we know that there is an incredible level of ambivalence. And actually, if you add the people who opt for um, that ambivalent unionism option and all the people that support for independence, in every part of the UK, you're up over half of the electorates. Mm -hmm. right? The balances are different. In Scotland, it's more people who support independence and smaller proportion of ambivalent unionism. Uh, you know, it's kind of the mirror of that uh, in England. So we've got this in... in at a time when elites are starting to see cracks in the union and reacting with um, quite strident messages about the importance of the union, it's completely at odds with the wider uh, attitudes in the in the electorate as a whole. It's it's most obvious in Scotland because support for independence is so high and sustained uh, a sustained lead that we haven't quite seen before. So it's kind of the most dramatic and shocking in the case of Scotland. But there's there's elements of it in slightly different guises in all four electorates in the UK. Thank you. Richard, do you wish to add to this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, just a couple of things. Because uh, Elsa's given such a, a good answer. But I think there's one thing that is always striking. I, I was talking to some French journalists this afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, and what, one of the things which you have to explain to people is that you don't have this notion of kind of the UK as an indivisible whole and maintaining the whole is some kind of value in itself. I mean, Elsa's just given us some of the, the, the data on that, but it's, it's a really striking uh, characteristic of UK politics that, that this idea of the, the territorial integrity of the state as being the most important value is simply not there, you know, it's simply not there. And, you know, and to prove the point, the current UK government has put an economic border between Britain and Northern Ireland in order to actually get the kind of Brexit that it wants it. Right. So, you know, not only has the UK removed itself from the European single market, it's actually made the UK internal market smaller in order to get the kind of Brexit that it wanted, okay? So that's a really, that's quite unusual. I mean, I, I would be very interesting to do kind of real comparative work on, on that, but I, I think it's very unusual. And the other thing to say about Brexit, and this goes back to the kind of nationalism point, is it in the way that Brexit has been implemented and you know there was nothing inevitable about this but there has been there has the the, the majority the narrow majority has been interpreted as a, a carte blanche to pursue the hardest line brexit possible really mm -hmm. and it's it's taken that kind of anglo-british nationalist project and really rammed it down the throats 
of everyone in the States. And the, 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 the challenge that that creates is that in Scotland and Wales since the late 1990s, there's been, there'll been alternative nationalist projects, if I can put it in those terms, mm-hmm. of developing home rule parliaments, home rule governments. And basically, you now have these clash of different nationalist projects. And what the UK government is doing in the way that it's implementing Brexit is basically forcing people to choose. And so one of the remarkable things that we've seen in Wales over the last couple of years, and it's only about a couple of years, is this surge in support for independence, especially amongst Labour supporters. So Labour is the dominant party in Wales for right. 100 years. It's now absolutely standard for my Labour-supporting students to be pro-independence for Wales. We know that in the recent polling, half of Labour supporters in Wales say they would vote yes. Now, it's not to, to independence. Now, it's not like Scotland. Right. As Ilse was saying, this is a sustained pattern in Scotland. Uh, Wales is different demographically in all kinds of ways. But what's interesting is that I think that these people are moving towards independence because Brexit is seen as undermining the possibility of meaningful devolution, meaningful home rule for Wales. And if you have to choose, we will choose independence. So you know, the, the particular way that, that the UK has, has chosen to implement the, the 2016 mandate is creating huge tensions. We're seeing them, on, unfortunately, on the streets in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, but, but you know, less dramatically, they're having a big impact in, in Wales even. Even placid little Wales is being hugely influenced by this. And then in Scotland, we're going to have a, an election in a few weeks, which may well see another mandate for a, an independence referendum. And then a really huge existential issue uh, for the states. Does it permit a second independence referendum or does it effectively close a democratic route to secession? which would be a hugely consequential step. Um, so yeah, so this is, this, is a, this is a state, and I don't think I'm exaggerating to say this is a state facing an existential crisis. Right. And, and if, I, if yeah, I could just jump in there, I mean, I think for, if for Canadian listeners, when, you know, as a Canadian watching all of this, it's, it's quite interesting, because I have in, in my head, you know, the behavior of, for example, the federal Liberal Party, how the federal Liberal Party would also have faced at moments of existential crisis, and you have a sense of how the that that how how successive Canadian governments, but 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 the Liberals in office would have uh, would have navigated those. And if you have that example in your mind of a quite cautious, um, you know, brokerage approach to politics to keep everything together, that's the most important thing. The actions of the UK government in the past. 10 years would appear to Canadianize with that example in the back of their minds, just completely reckless. Yes, that, that's the word that, I, that I've heard many times from my Canadian colleagues. Speaking of which, Elsa's written a wonderful book comparing national identity and political culture in Scotland and Quebec, uh, published with uh, McGill Queens, I think in 2007. Uh, so there's there's something to check uh, uh, check out if you like. Let me finish with Ben. Ben, your book is on Brexit, and the last chapter is called I think Interregnum and Restoration. So can you revisit the title and of course the argument in the title in light of what what of the post Brexit developments? Yeah, 
thank you. Well, yes, I mean, so, so obviously I'm thinking about periods in, in a period in English history, the, the Republican interregnum and then the, then the restoration of the monarchy. But what I wanted to say was that the Brexiteers were portraying um, Britain's membership or the United Kingdom's membership of the European Union uh, as, as something of an interregnum. But actually, so, so what came before was um, Empire and Commonwealth uh, and then Empire... Uh, well, it, the empire went, but the Commonwealth was uh, abandoned. And here I'm going to bring in an um, Australian and New Zealand perspective. Um, because, it, you know, when I was talking about, you know, Brexit uh, in, in Australia and New Zealand, um, amongst an older generation, there was what I would call a schadenfreude response. It was like, well, you ditched us in 1973. Um, you know, we fought two, two world wars for you. And then you just nicked off uh, because it made economic sense. Um, with the with the Germans, right? Mm. So uh, amongst an older generation, that view was still there. Mm. Amongst a younger generation, there was a much more pragmatic, well, kind of, uh, sometimes it gets called a gold rush mentality in Australia. I mean, how can we make quick money out of this? Mm. Um, and Brexit was just seen as an opportunity. As mm. long as you could kind of carry on having your free trade agreement with the EU and with the UK, not only had you mitigated your losses, but it's kind of easier and quicker to do deals with the British than with the Europeans, right? So... That was going on. And so that was the restoration part from the Brexiteers' point of view was, well, let's get back to um, what Daniel Hannan called our true friends, uh, you know, with all the implications of that implied about Europeans. So um, so that was, um, uh, that is the way that, that I think that um, if, we, if we start sort of trying to put this kind of Brexit moment, this national moment in a kind of a wider frame, that it starts to resonate with certain interpretations of uh, English, uh, well, you know, England's place in the world. And, you know, this has gone along with the kind of a rehabilitation of empire uh, and all the kind of debates that we're having there. So so um, all, all these things matter in kind of how people situate themselves in relation to their, their fellow people or even how they know who their fellow people are. Uh, and where the borders lie. And, and I think the thing about Englishness is it, it does have blurred borders. Mm. Um, and so, you know, even if we're thinking about the breakup of Britain from the perspective of, of Australia, that was there's never a clear moment where Australia really became independent. Right. I mean, some people would say it still isn't. But, you know, like, for the, but, you know, maybe that is the kind of, and again, maybe I'm falling back on ideal types here, but, uh, you know, we're looking for comparative models. Maybe, you know, the breakup of the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, uh, even Czechoslovakia are not the models we should be looking for. We're looking for something a little bit more, um, uh, you know, gradual, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I, I spent ages telling people that Brexit was a misnomer. It should be called Ingexit, but that was even uglier than Brexit, so it didn't stick. But it turns out, it turns out that Brexit did mean Brexit after all, because, you know, Northern Ireland was left in this... Um, strange you know constitutional situation and what we have is a great britain independent of the united uh, of the european union so um i i think you know maybe there are no models to follow and, and um you know the breakup of britain will, will pursue its own path but but england is surely at the core of all of this Thank you very much. We're at a 45-minute mark, uh, longer than I had than I than I, than I had uh, pr promised. Uh, so I want to thank you uh, for for your participation on behalf of the entire Center for International Policy Studies. Thanks again.
Hi, it's Phil the producer here, just reminding you to check out SIPS's website, which is www.cips-cepi.ca, and also look us up on Twitter at you are to a SIPS. <laughs>